my very first hero in life uh, was a Marine. He was strong, he was proud, and yet he was tender and he was loving and he was merciful. And he still is my hero. The way things are designed to be is that a child's first hero is his dad. And a child's first love is designed to be their mom. And so for you dads today, happy Father's Day. The great thing about heroes is that they leave a legacy. Whether they're here or not, their legacy remains. Uh, And so if you are a dad this morning, understand the legacy of the wake that you are leaving behind your footsteps in this world. My first hero, though a Marine Corps Vietnam vet, very strong, very tough, very aggressive at times, somehow figured out how to be a man of gentleness and grace. And I've never understood how he held both those worlds in tension and how they showed themselves in his life. But the more I've understood Scripture and grace from Scripture, the more I'm beginning to understand the powerful paradox that, was, that is my father. And so I'm going to do my best to unwrap grace this morning and in this series that we're in. But this idea of grace is so powerful and so profound and so deep that there's no way that I'm going to be able to do it justice, especially of my own accord. And so would you allow me to pray for me before we get started? Father, I thank you. Uh, Because you are magnificently full of grace. Your holiness is not muted. Your righteousness is not tainted. But at the same time, in the midst of holiness and righteousness, that is unprofound. Powerful. You yet respond to us in mercy and grace. Would you help us understand that? Father, we approach by faith in your son, your throne of grace with confidence and freedom, knowing that it is before that throne of grace that we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So in this morning, would you give me grace to preach the unsearchable and unknowable riches of Christ and to make those things plain so that we can understand more fully this thing called grace. In your name I pray, amen. One of the reasons I want to start this series is right after finishing a series on prayer is because we have a danger. After you go through some study or some learning about how to something, how to pray, the danger is to think, okay, now, if I master the how to, I can get God to. Like if a guy, if I can just understand how to pray right, I can get God to respond right. And there's danger in that because oftentimes without maybe realizing it, we think that we can manipulate God's hand by our behavior. That is religion. And so I want to show us in this series, and this is just the introduction of it, but I want to show us in this series, get this, imagine if this were possible, how to activate God's favor without behavior. Wouldn't that be fantastic? If you could activate God's favor in your life, 
for him to lavish his favor on you apart from behavior. In the series that we went through on prayer, what does grace look like in prayer? Well, for me, it looks like this. When we say, Father, I trust you. Please override my requests according to your grace. Respond to me in advance of my activity based on your grace. That's what it looks like in prayer. I'm giving you permission, God, to respond to me in advance of anything I do based on your grace. Here's why this is so important. This, I, this, this series on grace is so important. This is what the Bible says. Hebrews 12. The writer of Hebrews is talking to Christians. And what he says to followers of Christ is to see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Did you realize this? That even if you are a Christian, you can miss God's grace in your life. Like you can make it to heaven, but you can miss God's grace on earth. So he instructs people, be careful now. Don't miss his grace. Don't miss it. I don't want you to miss God's grace, so we have to talk about this. Another passage in 2 Peter 3. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But grow in the grace and the knowledge. But grow in grace and knowledge. See, here's the problem. Many people who are trying to follow God understand what it means to grow in knowledge. I got to learn stuff. I got to read stuff. I got to be at stuff because we erroneously think that by gaining knowledge, we gain experience. And when we gain knowledge, it makes us do certain things. I have to know what I'm supposed to do. I have to know what I'm not supposed to do. And we understand what it means to grow in knowledge. But do you understand what it means to grow in grace? If I, if I were to say, go out and grow in grace, what's the first question? How? And, and see, so few people can adequately define grace, let alone know how to grow in it. And so let me define grace for you, can I? All the things we'll look at is on the app on the phone. So all these notes are going to be there. You can follow along, take notes, and save them. Because you're going to have to refer to this stuff later if you really want to understand it and grow in grace and not miss it. Grace is this. Grace means literally to favor or honor. It's the manifestation of favor, especially by a superior to an inferior. It's the freely given. Grace is the freely given favor. The unmerited and unearned favor of God. It means you don't work for it. You don't earn it. It's his favor, his blessing. When you go to someone uh, it, it, who's a, who, who has authority that you don't have and you ask them for a favor, what are you asking them to do? You're asking them to do something that is to your blessing on your behalf for you, right? That's what a favor is. And so grace is going to the one with all authority, God, and asking him, because of his authority, to do something for us that benefits us. That's what grace is. Now, we cannot rightly understand the magnitude of what this favor is without understanding the idea of scandal. Because grace means nothing 
if it's not married next to scandal. Scandalous. It means literally something disgraceful, shameful, or shocking. So God's favor is even more profound when it's given to the one who is disgraceful, shameful, and whose life is shocking. Do you understand? Because if, if, if my life is that good, then he does, I deserve a favor. I earned it. Do you understand? So the more we try to convince ourselves and the more we try to be worthy of God's grace, the less profound it is. See, grace is only powerful when it's butted up next to something that is scandalous. And that's why I call this series Scandalous Grace. Grace, understand this, grace loses its power if it's not juxtaposed to something that's scandalous. And one reason so many people, especially who are in church, don't live with power, don't live with freedom, don't live with joy, don't live with the blessing of grace, God's favor, is because they've muted the scandal that is their life. We're so concerned about trying to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. We're so concerned about trying to make ourselves good and look good in front of other people that in the effort to make ourselves look good and be good, we invalidate grace. Unless you understand, unless I understand how scandalously wretched our life is, we will never understand the magnificence and beauty of grace. If you are a parent and you have children and you are trying to convince them, oh, you're a good boy, you're a good girl, you know what, you are so good. God is lucky to have you as part of his kingdom. You know, all you're doing is setting them up for the invalidation of God's grace. I've seen this over and over and over and over and over. When churches and well-meaning youth ministries have tried to convince kids this is how you behave. This is what you do. And you are good and you are valuable. All it does is invalidates God's grace and they end up walking away from him later in life. Because why do they need him? Because when life falls apart, well, God, I was good and you didn't respond to me. Because they've never experienced the wretchedness of their own soul. And the beauty and power of God's grace. Because once you experience that, you will never walk away. See, the more I understand how pure God is, and the more I understand how righteous God is, and then when I look at how he's manifested his favor on me, I'm telling you, it's nothing short of scandalous. When I look at how pure and how righteous God is, and I know me, and then I look at the favor he's given me. It is disgraceful that an almighty pure God would associate with me. I'm just telling you. It's disgraceful. How pure and righteous he is. That he would associate himself with me. And then bless me. And give me favor. Not because of my behavior, but just because of his grace. 
It's scandalous. And here's the problem. And here's why some of you have never understood God's grace. Because you don't yet believe how wretched you are. You're terrible. <laughs> see, when I read the Bible, what I see is grace. And I look at Scripture and I see what I call these grace guides that guide my life and direct my theology. And, and I see God as the great creator of grace and the first grace giver and the originator of grace and the perfecter of grace and the first revelation of grace. And Jesus, his son, was the embodiment of grace. And what I love about God and his grace is that he meets me where I am, but he never leaves me where he found me. And it has nothing to do with what I've done or what I do. Here is why this idea of grace is so important for me and for you. If you haven't realized this yet, this is why it is so important. Because I need God's favor in my life. I need God to in heaven say, who am I going to pour out my blessing on? Carl. I choose Carl. Am I, that's what I want. I don't know if you have that expectation of your life, but that ought to be your expectation too. You ought to want God to sit up in heaven, his eyes ranging to and through about the earth, looking for whose heart he can strongly support and say, I choose him. And it only comes through grace. It does not come by being good. It does not come by being religious. It doesn't come by obeying the rules. So here's the thing. We can try to get grace from God one of two ways. But you got to choose. You can have the expectation of getting grace from God based on how well you obey his rules. Or, secondly, you can expect to get God's favor just simply by allowing him to give it, though you don't deserve it. So which one of those is the easiest way? This ought to be really apparent. Like you can approach God, say, God, I want you to favor me based on how well I obey all your rules. How has that worked out so far? You know the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and over, expecting different results. Or you can approach God, God, I don't deserve this, but I want it. Like I want you to look at me and decide to pour your favor on me. I know I don't deserve it. God, you know, say, God, I want you to show off how good you can be to something that doesn't deserve anything. Just go ahead and show off. I would love for God to show off his goodness through my life, not yours, through mine. <laughs> See, there are two things that will cut you off from receiving God's grace. One of them is religious performance. When we live in such a way to try to be good enough for God to be happy with us and bless us, that's religious performance. If I can do the right things well enough and long enough that God decides I'm worthy of his favor, that's religious performance. And the moment you choose to live in the world of religious performance, you are cut off from God's grace. Why? Because God's grace is unmerited and undeserved. Do you understand? You tracking with me so far? So that's one way to cut yourself off from God's grace. The other way is to live in willful, ongoing sin. 
So please don't understand that grace means because it's undeserved and unmerited, you can just live like hell and there's no consequence. Like God's going, well, that's fine. Go ahead. You're going to disobey me all you want. Go ahead. I'm going to bless you. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that once you experience this grace of God, it's so overwhelmingly powerful that it makes you fall in love with him. And then you want to respond to him in obedience. Do you understand? But you don't respond to him in obedience so that he will favor you. And if religious performance and willful, unrepentant sin cuts us off from grace, what is the one thing that opens the spigot for grace? It's faith. Watch this. Galatians 3. I'm going to unpack this stuff for you now. But those who depend on the law. Now, the law is religious adherence to religious rules. Strict adherence to religious rules. So those who depend on strict adherence to religious rules to make them right with God are under his what? His curse. So wait, wait, wait. I thought that strict adherence to God's rules made him bless me. The Bible says, no, 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 no. Strict adherence to God's religious rules so that he'll favor you is actually under his curse. Why? Because the scripture says, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. Let's suppose that our lives, our body is hanging from a, from a, a, a chain strung up over a cliff uh, attached to a tree. It is, there's a tree, there's a big old cliff, your, your life is hanging attached to this chain. How many links in that chain need to break for you to fall to your death? One. So the Bible says you are cursed if you live under the strict adherence to religious rules because all you have to do is break one of them and you're doomed. But we approach it and say, but, 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 I got all the, this is one thing, I struggle. I'm really good at all the rest. How many have to break? So it's clear then, Galatians 3, that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep religiously all these rules so that he'll be happy with us. For the scripture says it's through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different than religion. This is different. Because religion says it's through obeying the law that a person has life. And this is what we have reverted to so many times. But God, I'm trying. But God, I'm good. But God, I'm. And he says, good for you. You should be. Not so that I'll be good to you, but just out of response to loving me because I've been so good to you first. Living by religious rules, law, nullifies grace. We have to understand this. Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, the strict adherence to religious rules so that he'll bless me, then Christ died for no purpose. He's saying, the moment I decide that I'm going to live by the rules so God will be happy and pleased with me and bless me, I have nullified grace and Jesus died for no purpose. Can you imagine? This is what happens when we revert back to religious rules to make God happy with us. It's religion. See, I sacrifice favor when I revert to behavior. We have to understand that. That I sacrifice and nullify favor when I revert back to behavior. The moment I go back to performance is the moment that I nullify grace and I sacrifice his favor on my life. 
He says, that's fine. You want to you do all that? Thinking by those things, I'm going to be happy with you and bless you? That's fine. You can do that. You've just separated yourself from my grace. Because if you're all that good, you don't need my grace. So live without it. You understand? See, here's the thing. We want to hedge our bets. We want to hedge our bets. We want to set ourselves up and be good enough so that when the fit hits the shan, God will look down and say, well, they've been really good. I need to help them out. You understand what I'm saying? That's how we live. And then when things do start to go bad, we really ramp up our religious behavior thinking, okay, now I'm really going to impress him so that he will step in and intervene. Hedging our bets. Rather than simply saying, God, I rely on, I trust in, and I have faith that you're going to respond to me according to your grace. So be it. Do you see one is just confusing and difficult and psychotic and the other is just liberating? Romans is is one of the greatest works. It is the greatest work of, on God's grace ever given to the world. And without it, we're stuck in the mire of law. So I want to jump into the book of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is going to talk about the law. It's going to talk about grace. It's going to talk about the, and the analogy of marriage. I need to say right up front that the law, when we talk about the law, the law is intended to highlight our failure to lead us to a place of freedom. But what happens is the law always gets us stuck in religion. It never gets us all the way. The law speaks to us over and over and over. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You can't keep all the commands, especially the way Jesus explained the commands in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is talking about the commands of God, known as the Sermon on the Mount. He's up on this mountainside talking to people. It's the greatest message ever preached. And he says in this message, he says, you've heard it said, according to the law, don't commit murder. I say, don't hate someone in your heart. And all of a sudden, you're like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Now, not only I can't strangle the idiot, I can't even like be a man. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, when you harbor that lust in your heart toward them, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. And people are like, okay, time out. <laughs> Like, if I'm going to be judged for the act, I might as well do it. I don't know what I'm saying. No, I'm just saying. That was a joke. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, my God. <laughs> no, he's saying, like it, 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 like, it happens in here, not just here, but in here. And the moment Jesus under, helps us understand that sin is in here, then we're all doomed. Like, we cannot keep all the law. Here's the thing. You and I can't even live up to our own standard let alone God's, right? So we're doomed. And this is what the law does. The law constantly speaks to us about our judgment, about our condemnation, about our failure. See, when we break God's law, it defeats us. But here's the worst part. When we keep God's law, it makes us self-righteous. I mean, this is how bad off we are. We admit we can't even live to our own standards, not let alone God's, and so we're defeated. But then when we do live up to God's standard, what's it make us do? It makes us look down on the one who did it. Now, I might have broken one link in the chain, but you broke eight. At least I'm not breaking those. I mean, look around you right now. There's some 
people here that are not good. I mean, just look around you. There's, there's people that you're looking at going, I know them better than him. <laughs> I, mean, I don't even know them, but you can look at them. <laughs> it's just obvious. And so when you keep it, it makes you self-righteous. And so the law, all the law does is condemn you and reminds us what a failure we are. Don't think in error that when you keep God's law, you're really good. Because that, by definition, is self-righteousness, and you have condemned yourself. You understand? Are you religious people? You understand? I tell people all the time, I'm not a religious man. And people don't love me. I'm like, what? I thought you were a pastor. Well, yeah, but I'm not a religious guy. Because there's something different between religion and relationship. And so in, in, in Romans 7, if you have a Bible, all this stuff's on the app again, but if you have a Bible in Romans 7, Paul takes the law and likens the law to a husband. And then he takes humanity and likens humanity to a bride. And he says, in their culture, the husband and the bride are joined together in marriage, just like humanity is joined to the law. So law, husband, bride, humanity. Husband, bride joined together, humanity, law joined together. Now, the law at that time is that the bride could not divorce herself from her husband for any reason. They were bound together forever. The only escape from marriage in these days for her escape was death. His death or her death. She could not legally divorce her husband. The only way out for a wife, no matter the abuse, was for death. Now, how does this sound? Woman, you're in an abusive relationship. Your only way out is death. <laughs> That's brutal. Or his death. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll take that one. <laughs> Watch what the Bible says, Romans 7, verse 2. For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. Do you understand? This is pretty simple, right? Okay. But watch how bad it is for this poor gal. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So she's stuck. If she were to leave him while he's alive, she is now an adulterer condemned to death. She's stuck until he dies, even if he's abusive, berating her, reminding her what a failure she is. She is stuck with him until he dies. If that were the case now, how many of you would say, I do? This is rough. And in the context of this passage, the law being the husband, will the husband ever die? Will God's law ever die? The correct answer is no. It will never die. It will never go away. So the only way out for this bride, humanity, is to die. What kind of freedom is there in that? You are stuck forever. So humanity's solution to being tied to the law, something has to die. Either the law has to die or I have to die to get free of it. That does not sound like a good scenario for me. And so Paul goes on in Romans 7. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. 
You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. He said, look, we, God didn't want you to die. So Jesus came and took your place in death. So now you don't have to be tied to that religious system that condemned you. He died. You joined your life to him. Now you're free. Do you understand? And in Galatians, my old self has been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Now he lives. So I was married to this one. I didn't want to die. God sent Jesus to die for me. Now, since I am joined to him, I died. I'm free from the law. Jesus' death has set us free from uh, legalism, from duty, from performance, from behavior. And I now, because of my relationship with Jesus, am free, not because I've obeyed the law, but because I've joined myself to Christ. I'm no longer condemned, and I'm no longer judged when I break the law. Likewise, I'm also free from legalism and from self-righteousness when I obey the law. Complete liberation. Here's the thing. This is reality for anyone who has accepted Christ, but it might not be your experience yet because you are still tied to the obedience of the performance of the do's and the don'ts. In grace, we are completely free and no longer self-righteous when we perform our religious duty well nor are we condemned when we perform our religious duty poorly. We're free by grace. Why this is so important is this. Here's the power of grace. We will always do more motivated by love than motivated by duty. Let me say that again because you need to understand. We will always do more when we're motivated by love than motivated by duty. Now, if you're married, you are duty bound to your spouse for certain things. And you can respond to your spouse out of duty. I guess I got to. Or you can respond to your spouse out of love. Which one is going to do more for the other? Duty or love? Every time. The problem is some of you are married to your spouse like you're married to God. And everything is by duty. I have to. And I'm going to do it whether I want to or not. Because hopefully they'll make things go well. How's that work in marriage? Same thing with your relationship with Jesus. And you've nullified grace. Man, I want you to get this. Romans 7, 4. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with the Christ. And now you're united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, you can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. Now it's not about behavior. It's not about performance. Now it's just simply responding because this incredible grace has been given to your life. And now I respond because I want to, not because I have to. And because we died to the law through Jesus, now we're free to be married to another who just lavishes grace on us. Lavishes favor. Undeserved. See, the law condemns even our best efforts. Even when we try real hard to be real good. Romans 7, 5, when we were controlled by our old nature, the sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused those evil desires that produce a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. Here's the thing. Now, do me a favor for a minute. Like in your minds, don't think of the picture of a red apple. Okay, just don't. A red apple, don't think of it, 
Like get the picture of a red juicy apple out of your mind, right? So the moment we start talking about a red apple, even though you're not supposed to, most people start thinking about a red apple, right? So you're condemned. You're like, well, I would have never known what a red apple was until you told me what a red apple was and told me not to think about it. Right, that's exactly what the law does. The law tells you, don't do this, and then you realize, oh, crap, I already did it. Well, now you're condemned. So as, as much as you try to be good, you cannot be good. See, there's the old written code that is the law, and the Bible says, but now we've been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. See, now I can obey God, not by a list of do's and don'ts, do's and don'ts, do's and don'ts. That's the old way of the written law. Now I can respond to him in a new way, the way of the Spirit. What's the way of the Spirit? Well, Jeremiah 31.3 tells us way back in the old days, I'll put my instructions deep within them, and I will write the new way on their hearts. There's no more list. If you have a relationship with Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is resonant to say, look, this is how I want you to do. And so then you just respond. You just respond. See, our problem is we haven't learned how to hear the Holy Spirit and respond to his leading. And so we want the list of do's and don'ts. And as long as we have the list of do's and don'ts, we adhere to the old written letter of the law and we nullify grace. But I want to know I'm doing it right. But I want to know I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Well, you're not responding to the Holy Spirit within you. All you're doing is respond to a list of dozen notes and notified grace. And around and around it goes. See, there's a strange paradox in Christianity. There's this strange paradox that we are never free to love and respond to God as long as we try hard to be good. Because we will always revert back to law, working hard to be obedient out of a sense of duty. This is the strange paradox. As long as I try hard to be good, I will never be free to respond to lo in love because I'll re always revert back to how am I doing? Do you understand? So the way to obedience of God is the freedom of grace, not the being bound to rules. See, no matter how hard we try, we cannot be good for very long. We, no matter how hard we try to obey all the rules, we end up in defeat because no behavior is sustainable. No behavior is sufficient. And Paul says as much. He says, and I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature, I want to do what's right, but I can't. You ever been there? I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. Like I'm stuck in this thing. And I'm trying my best. And I need God to move on my behalf. And I'm trying to do it right. And I need him to show up in my life. And I'm trying to obey. And I'm, I'm doing everything. But I can't do it well enough, good enough, long enough. And it's no reason, wonder things are going bad. Because I'm so, and we have missed grace. So what's the solution? How do we get grace, right? Isn't that what we want to know? The problem's in that very question. You don't get grace by a how. There is no how. Paul addresses this very thing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
I love the fact that Paul starts with that statement. Wretched man. I am a wretch. I'm not good. I'm stuck in sin. I can't oh, do this thing very well for very long. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me? But the answer, the solution is not a what. The answer, the solution is a who. He doesn't say what will deliver me from this body of death. He says who will deliver me from this body of death. Every time we revert back to the how, we go back to religious rules and we nullify grace. That's our problem. When he says who will free me from this body of death, the Romans had, a, they were masters at capital punishment, man. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they create this crucifixion thing, the most horrific way to, to, you know, to carry out a death penalty. They also had this strange law that they could, for someone who was not a Roman citizen, uh, but who was under their empire, who committed the capital offense of first-degree murder, they had a law that they could take the body that was killed and strap the body of death to the murderer. What would happen as the body of death was strapped to the murderer's back? What would happen? As it decomposed, as it rotted, the infected flesh, the maggots, the flies, the rats would take over their body. Do you understand? And what Paul is saying here is I have this body of death strapped to me. And I can't get free of it. And he doesn't ask, how can I get free from the body of death? He asks, who will free me from the body of death? Just not the body of death of sin, but the body of death of religious behavior that nullifies God's grace. See, there is no behavior, there's no practice, there's no procedure, there's no activity that can free us from the body of death. Only a person. And yet we keep coming back to how, 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 how. It's not a how, it's a who. And none of our hows make us right for the grace and favor of God. Do you understand? I've been so amazed the past few weeks. As Patient and I were talking, uh, what was the last Sunday night? I've been so amazed people coming up to me and asking me about this whole race relation thing. And the one question I get asked over and over and over is how? How? What do I do? How do I do it? The interesting thing to me in this race relation thing is it has been all race and no relation. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's been all race and no relation. If Christians who are supposed to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside would simply listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit talking about how to have a relationship with another person who bears the very image of God for whom Jesus considered worthy enough to die for and just respond by the leading of the Holy Spirit to the relation of a person, we would never have the issue of a race relationship issue. But a bunch of us sit around saying, how, what, how, what? And we've nullified the grace of God, not just in our lives, but in their lives too. You understand? See, the way to freedom is not a what. Performance, duty, religion, obligation. The way to freedom is a who. 
Nothing, you do nothing that I do could put us in line to deserve God's favor. It's just grace. All the rules that you put around your life to keep your life in line might keep your life in line, but has also attached you to the body of death that is religious behavior. It's no wonder that so many people in church don't live freely and don't live with liberation and joy. It's no wonder that so many feel as though following Jesus is a chore. Here's the thing. If Christianity, see if, see if you've been at the, I've been here before. It's not a fun place to be, but just see if this is you. If Christianity feels like work and is burdensome to obey, it's because you're strapped to the body, the dead body of performance and law. It was never meant to be that way. But I understand how it goes. It just feels like it's difficult, like it's a drudgery, like it's hard, like it's burdensome, like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can get all the... It's because you strapped yourself to a dead body of religious behavior. It was never intended to be that way. It was meant to be the way of grace. You might be saved, but you're not yet liberated. See, we fight a losing battle when we try to find freedom and joy in the obedience to religious rules. Whenever I talk about this, I talk about the idea of riding a tandem bicycle with someone. Do you know what a tandem bicycle is? Like two people, one behind the other. And so I, I talk about it like this, like obeying religious rules to try to make it. It's like two people riding a, a tandem bicycle and they're riding along and it's going well, but then they hit a hill that they got to go up. And the run in front is just pedaling and pedaling and working and striving and working. So the sweat's coming down and you're starting to make your way up the hill and the legs are hurting, the lungs are burning, the back is like the arms are shaking and you're just working, working every crank of the axles harder and more difficult and harder and more difficult. And you, you barely get up to the top and you're at the top and you can't get enough air in your lungs. It feels like you're going to pass out. And you say to the person like, man, I didn't think we were going to make it. It was so hard. And the one in the back says, I know. I felt like we were going to fall down too. So I kept the brakes on the whole time. <laughs> and here's what happened. Religious people put up all these rules and barriers and performance around their lives so they don't fall over and fail. Few ever make it up the hill, and when they do, they're exhausted, they're worn out, they're hurting, never riding in freedom and joy. Because just keep the brakes on. Do you understand what I'm saying? Religious behavior to earn God's favor nullifies his grace. This is the way of the law. And it will always lead you to failure. So I want to invite you. I want to invite you in this series to go on this little freedom ride with Jesus. And to experience real liberation. Life, John 10, 10, in all its fullness. 
See, some of you have salvation, but you don't have the full life Jesus was talking about because you've not died to the old body of death. You've continued to keep yourself tied to a religious system of rules of do's and don'ts, thinking by that God will be favorable towards you and give you blessing. And all you're doing is cutting yourself off from grace. You have to learn. We have to learn how to follow the spirits leading within us and just simply be free to respond. That's why I invite you in these next weeks together to learn how to be free from that body of death, to learn how to be free from the bondage of religious rules, to learn how to be free from self-righteousness, to learn how to be free from judging others when they fail, to learn how to be free of self-loathing over your own failure, to learn how to be free. Free to love and respond to God as he says, simply lead your heart. Free to live by the thing that I call scandalous grace. Can you imagine for a moment, Rick, come up here. Please come up here. They're asking you, please come up here so I'll be done. Can you imagine for a moment, just, just, just think for a moment, just think, think about how different this is. Think about how different it could be. Like there has been the way of religion. This is the flip side of religion and it's called grace. Think for a moment about the favor of God being all over your life. Just think for a moment about the favor of God being just saturating every element of your life, not because you're good. Just think for a moment about the blessing and the favor of God saturating and infusing all of your life just simply because you take a step back from religion and say, God, you are free to pour your favor on me. I'm not going to strive for it anymore. And if you're in one of those people that say, no, 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 that doesn't make sense to me. I have to do something to put me in the position to be good enough for him to respond to me. If that's where you are, in that moment, you have immediately choked out and nullified his undeserved and unmerited favor. See how precarious this is? Now, this is not a license to live however you want. Once you've experienced this grace, then out of love, not duty, you say, God, how can I show you how much I love you? With this bad as I am and the favor you've given me, how can I respond in a way that adequately shows you how much I love you? Because after all, who I am and the favor you've given me? I know I don't owe you a thing, but boy, I wish I could show you somehow. I mean, can you imagine, Caleb, like, once you get a view of, of how bad you are? <laughs> Here's the thing. God has been extraordinarily gracious towards you. He's given you so much freaking talent. You didn't deserve it. You didn't. I mean, you know, your parents, they're decent. <laughs> but I mean, other than Noel, you're probably the most talented Robbins. <laughs> you did nothing to deserve it. 
And I would go so far to say, I don't know all the details, but you probably have lived a hell of a life at certain points and God should have taken his favor off you. And yet he kept it on. And so there's no duty that you say, God, how do I pay you back? Now, once you experience that, I know your heart. You're like, God, how do I, how do I just respond to your grace? And you, like me, will do more motivated by grace than ever out of duty, right? That's how scandalous this is, man. And so in prayer, I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer right now. Just, I don't care if you close your eyes or not. There's no rules, right? But if it helps you center down, that's fine. But just get in a moment in your heart between you and Jesus. Like just because no, nobody else here. Just but finally just get in this place before the throne of grace of the Father and in freedom and confidence, just say something like, Father, I'm starting to understand how much you love me and I want to love you back. So help me just love you. Tell him, say, I want to hear you lead me from inside me. And so I accept you as the leader of my life. Forgive me for my wretchedness. I admit it. I don't deserve your favor. I don't deserve your grace. I admit my sin and ask you to forgive me. And in faith, I believe you want to pour your favor on me. And so I accept it. I receive your grace. Though I don't deserve it, I receive your grace. Though I've not merited it, I receive your grace. Tell him, say, God, I trust you to pour your grace on me in ways that profoundly exceed what I deserve. And in response, I do love you with my whole heart. Father, my prayer for us is that in this series, we will start to understand, just scratching the surface, of how profound and magnificent, of how marvelous your grace is towards us, who try not to earn your favor by behavior, but who simply rest in your grace. May we be shining examples of your favor and how you bless people that don't deserve it, like us here at Flipside. My goodness. Respond in advance to us according to the magnificence of your grace. And for that, God will give you thanks. In your name I pray, amen. Now listen, one last thing. Here's what I want you to do. Every morning now, when you wake up, you start your day saying something like, God, I want your unmerited and undeserved favor on my life. I admit it today, I don't deserve it. I admit it before you, I've not merited it. 
but God respond to me in advance of what I do according to the magnificence, the marvelous nature of your grace. Just tell him, say, show off today. Just show off in my life today. I'll do what I can, which won't be much. Override what I do according to the full measure of your grace. You understand what I'm saying? And then just live freely. Jesus came that you might have life and life in all its fullness. It is called grace. Don't nullify it. Live in it. Let's sing. Let's stand and respond to worship.